Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, the first chapter and beginning in verse 18. And again, I invite you to turn there and to follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We come today, finally, to the Advent material that we most associate with Christmas, that being the birth narrative of Jesus. I think that most every family has stories that accompany either their birth or the birth of their children or other near relatives. The stories may have to do with the difficulty of the delivery or the unique way they arrived at a name. may have to do with the car breaking down on the way to the hospital and then the subsequent ride in the ambulance. may have to do with how very tiny or how very large the baby was compared to how they are now. Stories such as these hold significance for people, sometimes for generations, and I would contend that it has always been this way. After beginning his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, a significance that we called to your attention a couple of weeks ago, Matthew then relates the birth story of Jesus, which was the story to end all stories. For he relates the supernatural way in which Mary came to be with child. Unlike the divine assists that God provided to Abraham and Sarah and to Isaac and Rebekah and to Jacob and Rachel, where infertility seemed to be the trouble du jour. In the case of the Christ child, the problem was not infertility. The problem was paternity. That long list of forefathers that Matthew recalls in the genealogy 
all suffered from the same genetic disorder. They could only reproduce what they were themselves, sinners in the first degree. But if there was to be a messianic Savior capable of saving God's people from their sin, then by necessity, He would have to be a Savior that did not suffer with this genetic curse caused by the sin of Adam. Further, He would have to be a Savior capable of suffering the full wrath of God in order for true justice to be satisfied. For such a Savior, He would need to be fully God as well as fully man. And so God brought about such a Savior in this supernatural way. The account that Matthew relates is told from the perspective of Joseph. And Matthew is careful to point out that there were no premarital relations between Joseph and his betrothed. Likewise, he is intentional in pointing out that the child developing in Mary's womb was the product not of any other man, but of the Holy Spirit. That is, the very spirit that attended creation in Genesis chapter 1 is involved in beginning a new creation, hovering once again over the waters, producing a new Adam who will bring about a reversal of all that the first Adam despoiled by his sin. Now, while there are those who will discard Matthew's story as pure fiction and completely unnecessary to the gospel, they do so at their eternal peril. For if the Messiah is not unique in his physical genesis, if he is not unstained by original sin, if he is not perfectly holy, and if he is incapable of suffering the complete penalty for our sin, then there is no Savior at all. Of course, this divine Solution was not without its own challenges. Mary and Joseph were betrothed, which is to say that they had a binding covenantal engagement. This was far more than the verbal pledge we may make to a significant other marked by the giving of an engagement ring. We all know how know how easy it is to become unengaged or to break off the engagement in our society. But such was not the case for Joseph and Mary. Mary had been pledged, betrothed to Joseph, and he was making the necessary preparations to bring her to his father's house within the year when he became aware that Mary was with child. Now we have no record of how that news came to him, but when he realized that she was pregnant and he knew that he was not the father, he came to the conclusion that any of us would, that she had been unfaithful to him. Now, the book of Deuteronomy would have offered Joseph some direction concerning this circumstance, but the proscribed remedy was dependent on whether Mary was a willing participant in the infidelity or an unwilling participant. In either case, someone was supposed to die. Either the man and the woman, if she was willing, or just the man, if she were unwilling, 
neither of which were particularly palatable to Joseph, whom Matthew describes as a just man. That is, Joseph was conscientious in his observance of the law of God. He was a faithful worshiper. He was not given to revenge, though Mary's apparent infidelity would have hurt him tremendously. So as he was pondering what to do, he considered the circumstance found in Deuteronomy 24, where it says that if a man, after he is married, discovers something in his new wife that is indecent in her, he is allowed to write a bill of divorce, a certificate of divorce, and send her away. According to the Mishnah, the rabbinic interpretation of the Torah, A woman in Mary's circumstance would have been off-limits to her betrothed as well as to her paramour so that Joseph would have been required to write a bill of divorce. Now this he could have done very publicly and horribly shamed Mary before the whole community, or he could have done so quietly, making use of two trusted confidants to sign that bill of divorce as witnesses and then simply sent her away in the dead of night. And it is this solution that seemed best to Joseph when he turned in for sleep. Little did he know what his night would be like. There are 70 instances of the word dream found in the Scriptures, and in almost every case, God is intervening for a divine purpose. And in this particular case, an angel of the Lord breaks into Joseph's somnambulance and reveals to him that what is taking place with his betrothed is not infidelity, but is actually the unfolding of a long-held divine promise that Joseph and all of his kinsmen have been anticipating. Rather than divorce Mary, Joseph is to do what he originally desired to do, to take her as his wife recognizing that she has not been unfaithful to him, but to the contrary, she has been perfectly faithful to Joseph while also being perfectly faithful to God. In fact, her willingness to serve God in this way is the fulfillment of a prophetic word given through the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah whose name will be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And as Joseph's dream unfolds, he learns that this very unique child will save his people from their sins, and so he must be given the name Yeshua, which means God saves. I want you to notice that the angel does not declare that this child will save his people from their warring neighbors or from a bad economy or from bad weather, or from physical ailments, or from political despots, or from physical starvation, or any other thing that you might think of that is a threat to people in this world. The angel declares that the child is to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, the greatest threat to every man, woman, and child is our innate spiritual condition, which is a condemnation unto death. And we may elevate a host of other things above this. We may declare that 
all kinds of other things are an existential threat to humanity. And we may invest an inordinate amount of time and energy and money to alleviate that problem or attempt to remedy it. But there is no greater threat to us than our own spiritual condition. When Matthew writes this gospel, there was adequate history to understand that mankind was and continues to be incapable of saving himself from the consequences of sin. And 2,000 years later, nothing has happened to alter that conclusion. Governments of all shapes and sizes and various stripes have each attempted to reign over the depravity of the human heart and each one has failed to stem the tide of human sinfulness. Psychologists and psychiatrists and philosophers have written extensively on the human condition, all seeking to find a formula that will curb the human appetite for behavior that is ultimately self-destructive. And they have all failed. World religions have all sought a way to understand why people lie and steal and kill and lust and covet and to then offer some alternative way to live. And in the end, they have no answers, for they all ultimately suggest that the answer lies hidden somewhere within. But any person who is remotely self-aware knows that God's not hiding in the depths of the human heart. There is no salvation found within us. There's, there are no spiritual answers in here. What lies in here is the trouble with us. And what human history tells us is that if we were capable of saving ourselves from our sins, then we would have done it by now. We have figured out how to fight disease, and every day we make new discoveries in the world of medicine. We have figured out how to send people into outer space, land them on the moon, and bring them home safely. We have figured out how to mass-produce food to such an extent that there's no reason that anyone should ever have to go to bed hungry. We have figured out how to transport people from point A to point B in a matter of hours, and we can instantaneously establish video contact with anyone in the world who has the right equipment. We have figured out how to do a million and one things that would cause Matthew and his readers to gape in wonder and awe, but we still have not figured out how to live without sinning. So instead of discovering how to overcome our sin, we have embraced our sinning and attempted to turn it into virtue. We applaud it. We revel in it without apology. We engage in it brazenly and then attack those who would dare to question our behavior. As a society, we have for some time now been attacking any institutions that have stood for a higher ideal, a higher standard, for we cannot bear to have any reminders that we are sinners who need a Savior. And from generation to generation, sin has prevailed and no one of us has ever been successful in overcoming our sin. 
Our inability is not a matter of education. It isn't that we are unaware of the issue. The solution is not to be found in the realm of cognition. It's not intellectual. Nor is it physical. It's not that we are in need of better bodies as if the solution is to be found in being stronger or faster or healthier. The solution is not to be found in better nutrition or better hydration or solving a vitamin deficiency because it's not physical. The problem is spiritual. And with every, within every man, woman, and child, sin is alive and well and it thrives. It has infected and affected every fiber of our being such that we cannot have a purely pure thought. We cannot have a purely pure intention. We cannot perform a purely pure act. We cannot utter a purely pure word. For sin dwells within us to such an extent that every part of us is stained with it. Many weeks ago now, we were in Romans chapter 7 when Paul complains that the good he wants to do, he's incapable of doing, and the evil that he doesn't want to do is what he ends up doing. And he attributes all of this dilemma to the sin that dwells within him. And he concludes that there is only one person who can deliver him from the wretchedness that is him. And that is God through Jesus Christ. Beloved, we all need this Savior. So imagine the excitement that must have existed in Matthew, the one-time hated tax collector who was called away from that occupation to engage instead in a work of proclamation, making known to the world that God had indeed sent a Savior. God did not scour the earth looking for a man good enough to become the Savior, for such a man did not exist and never would exist. For every man was, as King David declared, brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. No, God did a unique thing in introducing His Savior. For God sent His own Son, eternally begotten, one who would who would one day be described as very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father. And by the counsel of God's own will, the only Savior that would be pure enough and righteous enough and holy enough to accomplish the task of rescuing us from our sin would need to be one who was never tainted by our sin, but would, who would need to truly be one of us. And so by God's own design, the eternal Son of the Father took on our flesh and through the miraculous inception of the Virgin Mary, He came into the world as a babe and He grew in wisdom and stature before God and men. And in this way, God created a new man unlike any man that ever was and unlike any man that would ever be again. This Jesus was truly Emmanuel, God with us. No man was ever capable of doing what this man was capable of doing. His teaching instilled awe in all who heard him, even those who were out to get him, such that they remarked, no one ever spoke like this man. No man ever demonstrated such power and authority as this man, such that even the wind and the waves would obey him. And cause those closest to him to be in fearful awe. 
No man ever demonstrated such command over the spiritual realm, such that satanic forces were obedient to his commands to come out. No man ever offered such words of life to those who were downtrodden and destroyed by sin as this man, such that the vilest among us pleaded with him to let them follow with him. No man ever grieved over our lostness as this man, such that in the Garden of Gethsemane he sweated great drops of blood as he contemplated the enormity of the debt he was about to satisfy out of his great love for us. No ordinary man would have ever been capable of doing all that was necessary to save us from our sin. God would need a unique man, a God-man to save us, and in Jesus, born of Mary, God established such a Savior for us. When the angel explained to Joseph that God was in the process of bringing this unique God-man, this Savior, this Messiah into the world through Mary, his betrothed, to whatever degree was necessary, it made sense to Joseph such that his original plan to quietly divorce her went right out the window and he fully accepted the position that God placed him in as a protector of Mary and this child that was being formed in her womb. Now nowhere in this angelic encounter does Joseph ask any questions or offer any type of response. He never opens his mouth. He doesn't ask for clarification or offer any protest. He simply receives this divine command along with a newfound appreciation for the woman he is about to marry because of her own willingness to respond in faith to Almighty God. And so without a word, Joseph takes on the role of being the legal father to this child, giving him the name Jesus at the appropriate time. The name that would then be recorded in the annals of genealogical history because he was convinced that this child, this boy, would one day accomplish for us what no one else has ever been able to accomplish. It would save us from our sin. Now at some point in time, between the nativity and the cross, we surmise that Joseph dies, for he is nowhere to be found in the closing chapters of Jesus' earthly life. We can only imagine the words that must have been exchanged between father and son as they worked in the carpenter's shop for so many years, perhaps recounting on occasion the angelic proclamations that night or the visitation of the magi and the gifts they brought the flight into egypt to avoid herod's henchmen the thoughts that went through joseph and mary's heads as they scoured jerusalem looking for jesus when he was 12 i would guess they laughed about those things later i don't know but then there must have been a moment when Joseph was dying and Jesus was there. And what a comfort it must have been to the man to know that this boy was God's gift to the world and a gift to him 
such that Jesus' life would be poured out as a ransom for the sin of all those who have been born from above by the Spirit of God. And I would imagine that though he would never know how the story played out, that his heart must have been at peace, not worried about whether or not God would judge him by his own performance, but rather by the performance of this son, whom God had sent for a very special reason, to be Emmanuel, to be Yeshua, and save his people from their sin. Let me ask you this morning, does that same assurance overwhelm your heart and your mind this season? Or do you suffer from the delusion that you can work your way into God's good graces? You see, to truly desire Christ with genuine faith, we must first come to the realization that we are condemned sinners from the moment we take our first breath and that we are in need of a Savior. And if there is anything in us that whispers to us that we are okay just the way we are, then I would submit that what we have is not saving faith in Christ, but simply an intellectual assent that He is who He says He is. To rightly receive Christ, we must recognize our need for Him and turn away from our sin and trust in His atoning work at Calvary, recognizing that He has conquered sin in the grave by His resurrection and through His indwelling Spirit has made us new. And if that does not describe you as of yet, then I invite you even now to surrender to His Lordship, to receive the gift of salvation that He offers to all who repent and come to Him in faith in order that Your name might be added to this family tree as one of Jesus' brothers and sisters in faith. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray together?